morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation and around the world. I am Barrett Crow, and you are listening to the Curious Crow podcast. That was a shout out to my old friend, George Norrie, one of the greatest radio personalities of all time. And so I thought, what a better way to launch this podcast series than giving a nod to uh, one of the all-time greats. I'm bringing you this podcast today because I started thinking about Christmas. And as you know, Christmas comes around every single year. And every year you see more and more, I hate to say the word garbage, but more and more untruths, mistruths, something truth-related about the history of Christmas and how things came to be. And there's so much misinformation out there. Now think about it for a second. You got a big old fat jolly man in a red suit that brings presents, right? And that's somehow connected to the birth of Jesus. And that individual is named Santa Claus, but he's also named St. Nicholas, and he's also named Chris Kringle. So you're sitting there trying to sort this out in your brain and go, what the heck is going on here? So I, Barrett Crow, as a public service to you, or, or maybe that's community service, not sure exactly, but it, nevertheless, I'm going to present to you what's what with Christmas. Okay, so we have to begin at the beginning, and the beginning starts with St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was a bishop in 3rd century Turkey, and um, he was the he was the bishop of Myra, or Myra, depending on how you want to pronounce it, but I'm going with Myra. And, of course, he was a, a Christian saint, but he was just a good, all-around, holy man, nice guy, rolling around 3rd century Turkey. He even attended the Council of Nicaea, for those of you history nerds. So, so the guy had a little bit of clout. He was a, a rich man, even though he was a bishop. Uh, his parents died in an epidemic, which is different from a pandemic, by the way, but that's a different podcast. But they died in an epidemic when he was young, and he was left with quite a, a sizable fortune. And the reason St. Nicholas is remembered and revered and has a connection, quote-unquote, to what we would call Christmas is because he was extremely generous with his money. So you combine a do-gooder religious guy with a good heart that has a lots of money, and uh, that guy has a decent shot to go down in history. One of the main stories about his generosity was that there was a, a very poor man who lived in town, and he had three daughters. And uh, back in those days, for your daughters to be married, you had to provide the husband with a dowry. I mean, don't you? I mean, I wish those days were still around. I could have totally used the dowry. But anyways, the tradition behind that was so that the father would not be giving the daughter away into any kind of poverty. So I'm going to up your chances of success right out the gate by having a dowry. So you you got a shot, all right, <laughs> for this to work. You got a shot. And so what that meant in reality at that time was that those daughters were very likely to remain unmarried. And what it really meant, even more than that, for women like that that were unmarried at that age and uh, didn't have husbands and have a dowry and needed to survive, they would certainly have become prostitutes. So this legend, so to speak, is actually one of the most well-documented ones of, of St. Nicholas, so it's, it's very likely true. What he did was he, he took a bag of gold and he tossed it through the window so that the daughters could have a, a dowry. And he did this three different occasions, so there'd be a dowry for each one of the daughters. And this is where the idea comes from of presents coming down the chimney in the middle of the night from St. Nicholas. Now, of course, if you think about it, it's ludicrous. St. Nicholas back in those days did not come down the chimney or toss the 
gold down the chimney because it wouldn't be found or it would be burned or what have you. But he most likely threw it through an open window. That's what the legends say. Some of them like to put forth the idea that the reasons we have Christmas stockings is because when he tossed through the open windows, one of those bags could have landed in a stocking, which was hung by the fire to dry. Now, that is possible. I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. Be a hell of a shot, whether it was intended or not. But that's where the idea of Christmas stockings come from. So St. Nicholas was revered and loved for saving these three girls uh, from becoming whores. But he did all these things in secret. So apparently no one knew about it at the time, which makes you wonder, well, how do they know about it now and to tell the stories? But I digress. St. Nicholas was also known to be a protector of children. He's one of the patron saints out there of children. In one tale, there were three young men. They, they went to an inn, and the innkeeper there murdered all three of them, chopped up their bodies, butchered them, and put them in pickle barrels to brine uh, because he wanted to sell them as pork down the road, obviously, because during this time, meat was pretty scarce and rare, and you'd get quite a high price. So this guy goes, well, there's not much meat around. Screw it. I'm just going to kill these kids and chop them up, and some fool will eat them down the road. According to the legend, St. Nicholas appeared, and he asked the innkeeper if he had any fresh meat. Of course, the innkeeper replied no, and St. Nicholas said that he was a liar, that he happened to know he had the freshest meat of all. St. Nicholas and him go, he opens up the pickle barrels, and takes out the kids, brings them back to life. So, puts the kids back together, they come back to life, and the innkeeper goes off to be hung or or what have you. There's another story about St. Nicholas and children as well, which is um, on his feast day. Of course, this was after he had passed away. But on his feast day, there was a child that was taken as a slave by a band of Arab pirates from Crete. So, I mean, you think you've got it bad. Imagine just hanging out and a band of Arab pirates take you as a slave. So that's good times. He was uh, forced to be a cupbearer, which I guess is, if you're going to be a slave, that's one of the easier things to do instead of like hard labor. But anyway, we'll go with it. And one year to the day of when he was taken, which happened to be on St. Nicholas' feast day, his mother was distraught and prayed and prayed and prayed to St. Nicholas and just just having a horrible time dealing with all this on the one-year anniversary of her son being gone. And the child appeared back home with St. Nicholas, and he was still holding the gold cup in his hands from the pirates. So not only was the kid returned safe and sound a year later with St. Nicholas, who then I assume vanished after that since he had long been since dead, but they got the cup to boot as a parting gift for time served, I suppose. So that's another reason that he was always considered to be a patron saint of children. He's also a patron saint of sailors. Um, And the reason being is that all these stories we hear and we know about with all the miraculous things he did, those stories traveled around the world because sailors would go from port to port and tell about these miraculous tales. And that's how they existed all through history as long as they have. So he was a patron saint of sailors because there were stories to where he had calmed the seas on several occasions uh, to prevent shipwrecks. Conveniently, ships he was on at the time, so that worked out well for him. Uh, But he definitely became uh, buddies with the sailors through doing that. There was some other guy in history, a religious figure, can't quite put my finger on, that calmed the seas a time or two. I I, I don't know. That'll come to me in a little bit. There you have St. Nicholas, where, where he came from. And the traditions of giving gifts especially surprises at night, had nothing to do with Santa Claus, had nothing to do with the birth of Jesus or Yeshua, to use his proper name, had nothing to do with that. 
These gifts and these things were celebrated on St. Nicholas Feast Day as an honor to St. Nicholas, which was on December the 6th. So what the OG Christmas, you would say, was celebrated on the 6th of December as a thank you and remembrance to St. Nicholas. By the way, two neat little offshoots of that are a lot of the Christmas ornaments you see that are like the gold balls. Those represent the bags of gold that St. Nicholas threw in through the door or the window. So that's where that kind of came from. A bag of gold, a round gold ball, same idea, right? And even neater, which I'm so glad I found this out, all of you who are in great financial condition uh, like I am and independently wealthy and stuff and have been to many pawn shops in their lives, you have noticed that a lot of pawn shops have a, a their logo. It's like three gold balls hanging on a string, right? Now think about it. All this time, I assumed they were. It was a lamp, like three street lights with globes on it. That's what I've thought all this time. But no, it actually are the three gold balls representing the three bags of gold where Saint Nicholas saved those girls from becoming prostitutes. Because Saint Nicholas is the patron saint of pawnbrokers as well. So next time you go by a pawn shop, which hopefully is not anytime soon, and you see those three gold balls, remember, Barrett Crow is the one that told you about that, and St. Nicholas is involved with whatever shady dealings are going on within that building. Now, the tradition of having Christmas gifts left from St. Nicholas, quote-unquote, that started in about the 12th century, and you can thank the nuns for that, the uh, Christian Catholic Orthodox nuns, and I know those are two different things. That was a list. These nuns would leave the gifts on the doorsteps for children. And there would be a little card and a sign with them that said it was from St. Nicholas. So that's kind of where the present thing started. We're talking about the 12th century. Nuns, hey kids, presents from St. Nicholas, be good. So that's where that, that kind of kicked in right there. Some other neat little things about St. Nick before we move on from him, is that we picture him as the old jolly fat man with the white beard and the red suit and coat and all that. And we'll get to that a little later where the history of his appearance came from. But St. Nicholas himself had a Mediterranean complexion and he spoke Greek. So the guy speaks Greek. He's uh, He's got the tan Mediterranean complexion going on. And uh, being a bishop, and especially the type of bishop he was by keeping things in secret and whatnot, he probably wore a very simple tunic and a cloak. He definitely would not have any fur uh, or any or any thick jacket because the climate he lived in. So that, that was going to be no bueno. And in closing out on, on St. Nick here for a bit, they did actually rediscover St. Nicholas's original tomb. And this just happened recently. Many, many Christian pilgrims would go to St. Nicholas's tomb. Because he, he was the man, I'm saying back then. He was the man. So they would go to his tomb, not only as a pilgrimage and ask for forgiveness and whatnot, but because his tomb produced manna, which you may recall from the Bible was fed to the children of Israel as they were wandering through the desert for all those years. But it is noted and believed that his, his tomb would produce this and it would heal people. So many people would go to his tomb to try to get this manna to be healed, right? And all the skeptics out there, the guys that want to... Wanna, uh, trying to use good language here since there may be some kiddos listening, but all the ones who want to poo-poo on everything, especially anything of a religious nature, they have said for a long time, oh, that's baloney. St. Nicholas may not even have existed, even though that's very few people dispute that. But he may not, and sure as heck, that's not where his tomb is. Well, believe it or not, his tomb was found right exactly where everyone always said it was. So the Christian historians who had said St. Nicholas was buried in this church, well, you've gone to the church a million times and he's not buried there. 
But something happened with that church recently um, in the last year or two. I think they had to rip up part of the floor or whatnot, and they figured out that that church was actually built on top of another church. And once it was excavated, they found that, in fact, St. Nicholas' tomb, original tomb, was there. And yes, I know that's a bizarre practice, but apparently in the olden days, they would build churches on top of each other all the time. The original church flooded, was abandoned, and eventually another church was built on top. But they found his tomb. They know it's his because they were able to match up some fragments to verify that. So that is St. Nicholas. So we learned that good holy man, not wearing red, not fat, has nothing to do with the birth of Christ. That is where St. Nicholas comes from. So we're going to keep that story separate for right now from our next one. Now, of course, when we go into St. Nicholas, you're going to get some people that come out with some weirdo stuff, and uh, you're going to have Krampus. And a lot of people say, oh, I celebrate Krampus. And the first thing that makes me want to do is just slap the taste out of their mouth because there is no celebration of Krampus. Krampus is not a holiday. In fact, not only is it not Krampus, it's correctly the Krampus because the Krampus is a demon. Oh, yeah. And Krampus, that's the uh, came from the German word Krampen, which means claw. And if you if you want to look up Krampus to have yourself a, a, some, a, some amazing nightmares, uh, please do so because it looks, uh, it's pretty bad. Krampus is not a holiday, even though it sounds like one. It's not any kind of festival. In fact, the Krampus was a demon who, believe it or not, in like the 1600s, accompanied St. Nicholas around when he would do stuff. It kind of became the foil to where if you're bad, you got a bag of coal. You know, if you're good, you get presents. If you're bad, you might get a switch. So it got to the point to where St. Nicholas had defeated this demon, Krampus, and uh, after he defeated him, he kind of put him into to forced slavery to help him out with all of his children's stuff around the world. So uh, back in the old days, and still some to this day in places like the Netherlands, you'll see Krampus uh, accompanied along with St. Nicholas. And he usually has chains on because he is literally a slave of St. Nicholas. So since St. Nicholas's feast day is on the 6th of December, the Krampus would walk the night on December 5th, looking for the boys and girls who had been bad. And uh, in some of the myths out there, some of the folklore, the Krampus would torture these kids. They would get a spanking at the very least. And some of them, they would literally get eaten. Yeah, Krampus is pretty hardcore, but it's definitely not a holiday. And uh, St. Nicholas has them under control, so don't you sweat that stuff. But the neat thing about that, in addition to Krampus, that's pretty much where the, uh, the switches came from. So you want the OG original elf on the shelf? Uh, that would be bundles of painted birch sticks that were kept as a as a decoration because the kids would see those and it would remind them if you're bad, Krampus is going to come get you and they're going to whip you with the birch sticks. So like that was the old that was the old elf on the shelf. Okay, so now you know all about Saint Nicholas, and we got Krampus out of the way. Thank goodness. So where does Santa Claus come into play? Well, actually, this one is the simplest of all. Santa Claus simply came from the Dutch word Sinterklaas. So Sinterklaas was basically St. Nicholas in Dutch. So the Dutch were celebrating the same old St. Nicholas feast days that we just spoke about, except they called St. Nicholas Sinterklaas 
and that became Santa Claus through bastardization and translation over the years. So that one knocks Santa Claus out pretty easily. And in fact, you should take a look at it because the Sinterklaas festivals that happen over in the Netherlands are pretty amazing. I think he comes over on a boat every year from Norway or something like that. And uh, he has a whole crew with him. Sometimes Krampus is there. Uh, he has another guy who looks like a, a black uh, demon genie, kind of kind of like a genie, but is like the blackest color of black you've ever seen named Black Peter. And it's because he's one of the old djinns, uh, uh, kind of genies that, that were black because they were evil. Uh, so that's really neat. Um, but there's all kinds of crazy characters that are part of Sinterklaas. So if you should uh, take a look at that if you are interested. So now we know where the name Santa Claus came from. And uh, Santa Claus, the, the, even those terms and words, did not even really exist in the United States until the 1800s. Early 1800s is when we started getting the, the Santa Claus out there. So some of the early founding fathers and whatnot probably had nothing to do with or any idea of Santa Claus. And that's odd to think of because we consider him to be around going back hundreds, if not thousands of years which technically St. Nicholas, who this was all modeled after, was, but actual Santa Claus, no. Okay, well then you say, okay, Barrett, what about Kris Kringle, my friend? Yeah, Kris Kringle, where did that come from? Well, Kris Kringle as a name for Santa Claus. For that one, we're going to jump in the old Wayback Machine and go to the 1500s, to everyone's favorite time in history, the Protestant Reformation. If you don't know what the Protestant Reformation is, and I'm banking you don't, be sure to look it up. It is super interesting and helps you go to sleep really fast. But for people like me, it actually is a pivotal point in history, especially religious history. And so we had our good friend Martin Luther, yes, as of the Lutheran church, you betcha, he had a real problem with the churches of the day over there, uh, you know, across the pond. He had an issue with uh, many things, so many things that he wrote a big list about them. And uh, that list was supposedly nailed to some doors and whatnot. Again, look it up. But one of the things that he really discouraged was he did not like the idea of saints. And as we've already mentioned, saints were very popular, especially Saint Nicholas. So Martin Luther did not like the idea of praying to saints because he thought that that went against the Holy Scriptures. Like it's a no-no for the Bible, according to Luther. So what he did is he wanted to discourage praying to Saint Nicholas. And so he created Christkind, which is German for Christ child. See, a lot of this happens in Germany. So to speak, all this stuff, right? Christkind was his basically modified version of, uh, of asking St. Nicholas for gifts and getting Nicholas presents. So you could send a letter or a note to the Christ child and, you know, get you some presents that way. That way you didn't pray to a saint. If you're going to ask for something, you're basically asking Christ's child for it. So, I mean, I can understand the logic there. Over time, Christkind turned into Chris Kringle again through who knows. But by the 1840s, even uh, over there in... Uh, Germany and whatnot, they were referring to that as Chris Kringle. Okay, so that's where Chris Kringle came from. For us in the United States, 
you owe it all to a little movie called Miracle on 34th Street, which came out 1947. It's a great movie if you haven't seen it. It's basically a Macy's store Santa who uh, says he's the real Santa. And he uses the name in the film Chris Kringle, says that's his name. Obviously, the huge majority of Americans probably had not ever heard that before, but some wise guy who wrote it had heard it or had the roots and the ancestry to be aware of Chris Kringle and thought, hey, that'll be cool. His name will be Chris Kringle. And uh, ever since then, the entire rest of the God's green earth of civilization has said that Santa Claus's name is Chris Kringle. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, now going back to how did Christmas come about kind of as we know it, you know, uh, the way we celebrate it and Santa's descriptions and all of that. Well, we can trace that pr- pretty good back to around 1822. And in 1822, Clement Clark Moore, you're like, oh, that name sounds familiar. I know that name from somewhere. Clement Clark Moore. Well, he was a minister and he wrote a poem for his daughters. Okay. Just wrote him a nice little poem because he's a good guy. And the name of his poem was An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas. Sounds like a cute name. You may have heard of it by the more commonly referred to name of Twas the Night Before Christmas. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. This like blows my mind when I think about it. So this guy, just a normal average guy, a minister, you know, he's not like some billionaire. He's just a regular old minister, and he writes a poem for his daughters just to be nice, and he thinks they'll enjoy it about St. Nicholas and a visit from St. Nicholas. And his poem becomes the basis of the entire history for Christmas and the groundwork for the United States of America Christmas celebrations of the whole world. So, I mean, just think about that for a second. Pretty much everything we know or celebrate about our version of Santa Claus here in the United States comes from that poem in 1822 by Clement Clark Moore. That's where we get all the coming down the chimney and the presents and the fat man and the bowl full of jelly and all of that nonsense and the reindeer and the sleigh. That all came from his poem. And that just became Christmas gospel right there. And uh, his poem was just a hodgepodge of folklore from many, many different traditions in many different countries. So he obviously was a, was an educated man. Uh, he knew his, his, his stuff from around the world. And there you go. He uh, wrote that poem and pretty much made U.S. Christmas. And then, of course, Thomas Nash in uh, 1881, he did a Santa Claus cartoons in Harper's Weekly, which was like the publication of the day. So he drew some Santa cartoons in 1881 that give us the idea we have today. The big fat guy, the fur coat, the red the buttons, the big belt and all of that nonsense in the hat. And, of course, as my brother said, Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus. While technically not true, Coca-Cola sure did a lot with a lot of money and a lot of advertising for quite a few years to give us the image of Santa Claus that we have now. Uh, So there you go for that. If you want to say Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus, you are not far off. Something else you might find interesting and or useful, especially if you travel around the world, is that Orthodox Christians, they celebrate Christmas on January the 7th, not December 24th, not December 25th. They celebrate Christmas the 7th because Christmas was on January 7th on the Julian calendar. And you go, the Julian calendar, what the heck is that? Well, for those of you who don't know, we currently operate on what is called the Gregorian calendar. And the calendar prior to that was the Julian calendar. And I'm not talking about the guy from Trailer Park Boys. I am talking about Julian as in Julius Caesar. 
And the Ethiopians actually are, are Orthodox, and they believe that the wise men that came to the birth of Jesus were from Ethiopia. The three wise men were Ethiopian, and actually quite a few other groups believe that too. So when they celebrate their Christmas on January the 7th, they're pretty hardcore. Their Christmas, they have no gifts. Uh, they fast all day on Christmas Eve and then go to church at 4 a.m. Sounds like a good time instead of drunken debauchery presents and feasting, which someone else we know, that's how they celebrate. Give it to the Ethiopians. I mean, at least they're serious about that. <sighs> And so there you have it for Christmas. Uh, kind of wrapped up there. What's the difference between Kris Kringle, Santa Claus, Sinterklaas? We've got some Krampus thrown in there. And for your one bonus, I'm going to let you have it about the calendar. Because I said the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar. And I know so many of you geniuses out there are very curious about that. And Ethiopian, and I'm going to let you have it. The Julian calendar was written well, I won't say written, was created by Julius Caesar. And we're looking at around probably between 40 and 45 BCE or so. Caesar was advised by an astronomer from Alexandria that uh, the current Roman civic calendar that they used, uh, it was off by about three months. He said it was like three months ahead of what he would call an astronomical solar calendar. So imagine this. You're Caesar. You pretty much rule the world. And some dude comes up to you and goes, hey, man, I'm like an astronomer. And that calendar that you use, you're off by like three months, dude. You're like three months ahead of schedule. And so Caesar goes, hmm, all right, I, I feel you. So I'm going to make a reform and I'm going to change the calendar to be the Julian, for Julius Caesar, calendar. And so the uh, reform that Sausagenes, Sausagenes was the name of the astronomer put forth, was the Egyptian solar calendar. And his calendar had 365 and one quarter days per solar year, which is very similar to the calendar we're using right now. Uh, of course, uh, you know, every month had had 30 or 31 days, and there were 12 months. And then the February had a day of 28 days, and then on leap year every fourth year, it had an extra day. Sounds familiar, exactly how we operate. Except, here's something funny for you. Back in his calendar, February 29th, never existed. So on the leap year where they had to have the extra day for February, they did February the 23rd twice. I'm not kidding. And I don't know why they picked February 23rd, but for leap year in the Julian calendar, they would repeat February 23rd a second time. And that's how they would make up that extra day. So then Caesar goes, all right, well, we're going to make sure that this works. I'm going to go ahead and add 80 days uh, to the year 46 BCE. So on 46 BCE, he added 80 days and said, all right, we should be pretty square right now. So it took to about the year 8 CE uh, for everything to get smooth and the Julian calendar was kind of accepted and used everywhere. So uh, it took about 54 years for Caesar's calendar to catch on and, and be used, uh, you know, quite a bit. So in the middle of the 1500s, the scholars of the time, oh, and I love when we've got scholars, they noticed that the dates of the seasons had shifted about 10 days from the time of Caesar. Now, this, of course, leads me to go, how the hell did you figure that out? Like, what the seasons were like during the time of Caesar, uh, which we're talking about, oh, what, 1,500 years prior. You go, you're sitting there, and you're like, I don't know, what are you doing? Like, having a drink, kicked back, and you go, dude... 
I don't know about you, uh, but what do you think, man? It seems to me like back in Caesar's time, like 1,500 years ago, like the seasons were like 10 days different, dude. Oh, yeah. I never thought about that, bro, but you're right. It's like it totally seems like 10 days for sure. So, I mean, that's how does that happen? But this happened in the 1500s. And so, not to be outdone by Caesar, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth, he goes, you know what? I'm going to adjust the calendar by those 10 days myself. So he declared in 1582 that our old buddy Sosigenes had overestimated the length of a solar year. And if you are curious, according to his scholars at the time, good old Sosigenes had overestimated the length of a solar year by 11 minutes and 14 seconds. I mean, we can't get health insurance for people. We can't even go to Walmart without beating the crap out of each other for toilet paper. And yet, in the 1500s, they can say that you overestimated a solar year by 11 minutes and 14 seconds. I really, really think we go backwards in history sometimes. So, since 1582, the world had transitioned to this Gregorian calendar named after Pope Gregory the 13th, and Britain officially changed over in 1752. So that kind of gives you an idea as to, to how that works with 1752. Uh, how long it took everyone to catch on. It kind of took a while. So there you go for that. So now, of course, you intelligent guys will be asking the question, well, if we know that Sausagenes was off by that 11 seconds and 14 minutes and whatever it was, or, I don't know, 11 minutes and 14 seconds, I believe, since we know he was off by that, Eastern Orthodox Christians, then why do you still use the Julian calendar to calculate your feast days like Easter and your movable dates? And of course, their answer is just because that's how we've always done it. So when you go to sleep tonight, you have a thought in your head and your head's, uh, you're about to drift off into dreamland. I want you to realize just how much of a disaster will this be because who knows when Christmas or Easter will be in the future if you are an Orthodox Christian because the difference between the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar is already a 13-day difference in our lifetime right now. And by the year 2100, it's going to be up to 14 days. So what happens hundreds and hundreds from years for now? I don't know. We're going to make up a new month called like Zinflarb to make everything line up. These are the kinds of things I think about as I try to go to sleep. <sighs> And finally, no Christmas podcast would be complete without the acknowledgement of a holiday that I hear so, so many millennials and such talking about, Festivus. Festivus, yes, Festivus, which is celebrated on the 23rd of December, and once again, not a real holiday. Festivus was created by a guy named Daniel O'Keefe in 1966. It's just something he did for his family to be different, to be dumb, to be whatever you want to call it, depending on how you look at it. But he goes, I'm sick of commercialism. We're going to have like an anti-Christmas holiday. Yeah, well, pretty much very few, if anyone, had heard of that until Seinfeld. You, you heard of that guy? You know who that is? Jerry Seinfeld on his show Seinfeld in December of 1997. Episode was called The Strike. They highlight this whole holiday of Festivus. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but basically George's father in the story 
has developed his own anti-holiday for Christmas called Festivus. How did this come about? Well, because Dan O'Keefe is one of the writers in Seinfeld, and it was his dad who originally made up the Festivus deal himself. So he goes, hey, why not? I'm going to write this into Seinfeld and become famous and rich. Not necessarily in that order. So Festivus has an unadorned aluminum pole instead of a Christmas tree. You can't put tinsel on there because, according to George's dad, that's distracting. Uh, There are, of course, the airing of grievances, where you get to just, for lack of a better word, bitch out everyone you've been mad at the whole year. And, of course, there's feats of strength as well. And you hear so many people walking around with uh, talking about, oh, Festivus, ha, ha, ha. They have no idea where it came from. They know anything about it. They've seen some of the older guys of my generation and age that actually saw the show wearing a Festivus shirt, talking about it. But if you ask these on-the-street posers about Festivus, 9 out of 10 of them don't know what it is. They think it's cool because they go, oh, it's like the anti-Christmas, and you can't tell anything about it. They don't realize it was basically made up as part of a television show. And that is the sad state of many of the young people around today. And a little note for those of you who actually enjoyed the Festivus Seinfeld episode. The original Festivus, which the guy made, the writer's dad who made up Festivus, originally there was no unadorned aluminum pole. What his dad did was he nailed a clock to the wall inside of a bag. So his dad put a clock inside of a bag and nailed it to the wall instead of the aluminum pole. And when his son asked him why, he would never tell his son and said, that's not for you to know. So there you are. So that's a good little tip. The unadorned aluminum pole was created strictly for the show and not part of the original Daniel O'Keefe's lunacy when he made up Festivus for his own home. And there we have it. Now you know everything there is to possibly ever know about Christmas and never need to listen to another Christmas podcast again, except for my next one, which is going to talk about really stupid Christmas songs and their origins. So, you know, be sure to listen to that one. But other than that, no other podcasts at all. So here is Barrett Crow wishing you a very Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and yes, even begrudgingly, Happy Festivus. And I will leave you with our thought of the day. And this thought is from the late, great, amazing Jonathan, musician and comedian, who once posited on Christmas the following, the same letters are in Santa that are in Satan. They both wear red and black. And have you ever seen them together? I'm Barrett Crow. Good day. Be sure to subscribe, to like, to forward, and to share. I need your help getting this out. We're brand new, taking off the ground. If you like what you heard, do all those things. If you don't like what you heard, do all those things too so you get material to complain about.